Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and we're back for another episode of the Burger No BSBC campaign, or series, I guess we should call it. Um, uh, we're on episode five, I, I think this is, and getting great responses. We have Brian and Emil back on the phone with us to answer some of your questions, to dig a little deeper into Burger's mindset, processes, and, and things that, that go on behind the scenes. I mean, this is a great window into, you know, the industry, into the manufacturing and, and how just, you know, we, we tend to think, you know, when we're not um, in the public eye, I guess, is, is a great way to put it. But thanks, you guys, for being on again and hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, good to be here again. Yeah, Frank, good to be here. Thanks for having us. Excellent, excellent. We, we uh, Everybody's safe and, and, and no dramas out there. Uh, we're we're kind of looking like we're going back into a little bit of lockdown, but uh, hopefully not too bad. I know I got to get on a plane tomorrow and had to fill out a ton of forms uh, for the state of Alaska just so I could show up and not get kicked back out. You know, that's always fun. Well, I'm up here in the uh, the People's Republic of Washington State, so you know I have to I have to show my papers every 15 feet on a checkpoint on the highway. So uh, you know, good out of the chop. <laughs> You can welcome to come with me down to the chop, Frank, anytime you want. I'll show you around. <laughs> no, thanks. I mean, unless there's a restaurant <laughs> open and, and you're saying, hey, Frank, you have to eat here. I don't really see a reason. But, um, yeah, for sure. I, c- I could only imagine. Um, it, it, it's it's weird. But, anyway, let's jump into this with the uh, no BC. Now, there was the, – we've been getting great feedback from everybody. They're, they're, they, they, um, they equate the last two episodes we've done – to uh, knowledge bombs being dropped on Hiroshima there. Uh, so uh, I think that's a good thing in, in, in terms of knowledge. You know, if you have an atomic bomb of um, information coming at the listener, uh, I think we're doing the right thing. So uh, with that, one of the questions that came up more than once, and, and I think it gets deep, but somebody wanted Brian to talk about sectional density and how to use that number and if that number is worth using and, and, and basically just a little bit of information uh, to, to catch up with some of the questioning on sectional density. Sure. So sectional density is really not that complicated or far in the weeds. It's one of those fundamental concepts that if you can truly grasp it and understand, have a comfortable understanding of it, Um, then you have a comfortable understanding of, you know, uh, ballistic coefficient itself and a lot of what bullet performance is based on both terminal and external. So sectional density is, I mean, just break the word down section. So cross section, like the cross sectional area of something is basically uh, like if you cut the bullet in half, um, you know, how, how big around is that circle? That's kind of the section that you're talking about with cross-sectional. And then the density is how much mass is behind that section. So for example, you know, imagine the sectional density of a bullet, a short fat bullet would have a low sectional density because it's got a large area, but a small amount of mass behind it. But a long skinny bullet has, um, you know, has a smaller area, smaller cross-section, but a lot of, a lot more mass. And if you take it to the extreme, uh, consider an arrow, you know, with feathers or fletchings, um, same thing. It's got a relatively small cross section, but a whole lot of mass behind it. And, you know, if you've shot 
arrows into some things like sandbags, you'll find that they actually penetrate a lot further than bullets in some cases. Um, and that's, that gets to the, you know, the essence of what is, you know, what performance metric does sectional density really speak to? And it really comes down to penetration. You know, the more mass you have behind a small area, the further something will penetrate a target. Now you've got bullet expansion and performance and all that, you know, um, you know, terminal, how a bullet breaks up. And that's kind of a different, you know, that's a different topic. Once a bullet mushrooms and breaks up, it's cross-sectional area has changed. And a lot of times it's retaining mass has changed. So that gets real complicated, but to have a basic measure of a bullet's potential to penetrate into a target that starts out as a sectional density. Um, now to calculate it is really easy. It's the bullet mass or the weight of the bullet in grains divided by 7,000 divided by the caliber squared. Now that's not strictly giving you cross-sectional area in the right units because <clears throat> there's no, you know, if you were really going to do the area, you would need pi and it would be a, a little bit of a different formula. So what you're getting with cross-sectional area is a number that um, that correlates or corresponds to the mass per unit area. So not to let that get too confusing, the formula, I mean, if you know the bullet's weight and its caliber, it's weight divided by 7,000 divided by the caliber squared, and that's the sectional density. So um, sectional density of a 175 grain 308 caliber bullet this is where graphics would help if I could just do this out by hand is um, I believe it's 0.264. I think um, it's sort of a coincidence that that equates to a caliber that really doesn't mean anything. It's just, that's what the number is. So sectional density is really easy to calculate because you always know the weight and diameter of the bullet. Now there's only one more step to go from sectional density to ballistic coefficient. This is where it's in fundamentally important to understand sectional density. That's the bullet's ability to penetrate into a target. Well, remember we've talked in, in past episodes that ballistic coefficient is a bullet's potential or ability to penetrate through the air. So penetrating through the air and retaining velocity really depends on the same kind of things as penetrating through a target on impact. Um, it depends on the cross-sectional area and how much mass is behind it. But when you're flying through the air, there's also a factor to account for aerodynamic drag. You know, if you had a, um, you know, 30 caliber, 175 grain projectile shaped like a wad cutter, that's obviously going to have a different ballistic coefficient than something that's, you know, got a long spitzer nose and a boat tail. So in order to go from sectional density to ballistic coefficient, there's an additional factor called the form factor. And that's what relates the bullet to either the G1 or the G7 drag standard. And that's what basically relates a sectional density into a ballistic coefficient. And that's something else that goes in the denominator. So if you were calculating ballistic coefficient, you'd have your bullet weight divided by 7,000 divided by caliber squared, and now divided again by the form factor. So if you have a low drag bullet, that'll have a low form factor because it's in the denominator, it'll make the number higher to make the BC higher. So lower drag makes a higher BC. So that's, uh, again, sometimes I wish we could just have one or two slides because yeah. this is really like, it's like third grade math, you know, it's just division and everybody knows the numbers that go in there, caliber, weight, and then form factor is really easy to, um, to determine 
from the shape of a bullet, at least estimate it very closely. And when I say yes, when I started talking about this, I said that it's one of those things that if you have a, a very solid grasp of this fundamental, you can, you know, really take it a long ways. You can make a lot of you can answer a lot of your own questions. Um, one of those things you can do is, you know, a lot of times we see advertised BCs for bullets on the Internet or, you know, they seem kind of kind of large, you know, kind of questionable. And we ask, you know, if they're inflated or is that really realistic? Well, one of the ways that you can get to the bottom of that is if you reverse engineer that formula that relates ballistic coefficient and sectional density, and basically you find out what the form factor is. Now, if you're familiar with bullet shapes, you'll realize that the range of form factors that you're dealing with pretty much goes from like for any like any bullet that's considered a long range bullet, it's probably going to have a BC of or a form factor of 1.0 or lower. All right. Now, there's some exceptions like a 175 SMK is a long range bullet, but it's one of the blunter, you know, it's not a low drag long range bullet. And that one has a form factor of like 1.09. Um, 1.0 is probably average or common, but you get down to form factors of 0.9. And now you're talking about VLDs, long range hybrid bullets. You know, those are your very low drag bullets. So within the span of only like plus or minus 10% of a form factor of one, you encompass most of the bullets that we shoot that are on the market. And if you look at a bullet and it's relatively low drag, you can, you know, sort of ballpark its form factor. And then because you know the sectional density, you can ballpark the BC. And you can reverse engineer this if you see a bullet and somebody's advertising a BC for it. Well, that BC number, a lot of people are mystified because they don't know what comprises that BC number. Well, when you understand how the sectional density and form factor go together to result in a BC, you know, you can easily figure out what form factor is implied by a ballistic coefficient that's being advertised. And sometimes what you find is that, you know, a BC that you're suspicious of, you know, that you see on online, if you reverse engineer that and find out, you're like, okay, this is a 308 caliber, 220 grain bullet, for example, and they're advertising a BC of this. Well, that implies that the form factor is like 0.7. All right. And if you get something like that, it's very unlikely that it's realistic because I don't think I've ever seen or measured a bullet with a a form factor that low, like even the very best, like the sleekest possible solid copper bullets, you know, lathe turn solids that are optimized for drag reduction. You know, they'll see form factors as low as 0.8, but that's about as low as you'll see. Yep. So, so you, that's, are, are I, you getting like part of the, um, the question I would come in when guys are getting the BCs, the numbers that are higher than they technically should be. Are you seeing that's because of the shorter range testing they do? versus sort of averaging out as I know a lot of you guys with Doppler now are trying to push that BC number more in, in, in like the 800 yard zone um, versus the 300, you know? And so do you see that it's a factor of like, and, and not, you know, just in broad terms, I'm not trying to call somebody out and say, well, that's, that's not, but just that they do it at a short range and give it like the, the, the most speed at the shortest range they can measure it. Yeah, it can be. That can be one of the reasons why uh, BC is, is higher uh, or it would appear higher is if you only consider it a high speed and short range. Um, but I would say that's a 
a partially technically valid way to arrive at a high BC because at least you measured something at some point that indicated that, um, you know, that's not what you would want to use for long range trajectory prediction because you obviously want the average of the bullet flight over long distance. And if you just used, you know, the high speed data from short range, even though that's supportable by that short range measurement, it's not really what you see at long range. So, but there's other cases where, you know, um, especially with your, uh, some of your custom bullet makers, these guys that, you know, they're just making bullets as a hobby and they don't have a budget for any kind of ballistic instruments or testing. And, you know, they, they just kind of make it up. They just kind of do their best and, and put a guess on it and put it out there and, see what happens. And a lot of those numbers can be, you know, way off the wall. Um, you know, and I don't mean to imply any malice on anyone, not just not everyone has the resources to test things accurately. No. And, and that's a great, cause it just happened at the cup, um, two weeks ago when I was in Washington, one of the shooters came up to me and said, Hey, you know, and, and I've been through this as you have and everybody where there's the, there's the independent bullet maker, mostly working in solids cause they get access to lays and things that they can do that. And it was like, hey, we're going to, we, we figured out, you know, like they figured out, but we, you know, we, we developed a, um, a, a 308 that's going to be the greatest 308 on the planet. And then the guy comes back and says, yeah, they need a six twist. And it's like, whoa, whoa, what is, what good does that do anybody to make a 308 that you have to shoot out of a six twist? And, and, and I've been down that road. I have that, um, I have that 13 to 5 twist 338 that shot those old uh, Noel Carlson bullets that were, you know, almost three inches long for a 338. And, and yeah, they'll work, but the twist, you know, 13 to 5 twist, you can't shoot anything else out of it. You'll break it. And, and so mm-hmm. it just seems kind of, a um, you know, while you can kind of push that envelope so hard, do you really want to? Yeah, that's a that's a good point, especially when you're talking about solids. Um, some of the more radical solid designs that I've seen imagined online, and then some of them even get made, they um, they're really pushing the limits of um, what you need to do for stability. Now, some there's some attributes of those solid designs that challenge stability more than they have to. You know, I'm I don't mean to go into very you know de- design details here, but sometimes you have a bullet that it could be that length and it could be that weight and be stable out of say an eight twist. But because of certain design choices that are made, that bullet of that length and weight, instead of being able to stabilize in an eight twist needs a six twist or maybe even a six twist doesn't do it. There's just some things you can do to a bullet that make it inherently more difficult to stabilize. And that's not always obvious to, you know, we all have our strengths, you know, these guys who are, you know, have access to CNC lays maybe through their day jobs or they, you know, they own them as a hobby. They're, they may be wonderful machinists, better machinists than me. Um, but it takes a combination of skills to produce something that is both a high quality, you know, turned metal, pro, you know, product on a lathe, but that is also designed in a way that's consistent with, you know, aeroballistic realities. And that that's, usually not a skill set that you find in a single individual that often takes a team of people that are contributing their strengths to the project to really, you know, come up with something that that's legit and has, you know, really is optimized in every way. 
Nice. No, that's a great way of uh, putting it. And, and it, no, and I think it's 100% fair to everybody out there because we do like to see push, people push envelopes. But at the same time, you know, just because we can push that hard and far, you know, where where is the industry on a practical standpoint? And can you work within that practical application versus making something that goes so far outside of it that does work, you know, based on what you're trying to accomplish? But it's like you got to build a $12,000 gun that will only work with that bullet. How practical that does that become um, from a, a commercial standpoint? You know, can because, you know, now it's you're telling everybody you, you got to start from scratch in order for this technology to work for you versus, hey, let's work within existing, um, you know, our existing uh, uh, products there. Yeah, practicality is a very good point. And I mean, it's one of those trade-offs that you make. Um, in many aspects, you know, cars, you know, you get a sports car, have a shitload of fun, but they're, you know, more expensive than they have to be. They're not really practical. So we're familiar with this trade-off, but most of the time we know we're making it, you know, when you buy a sports car, you know, you're making an impractical decision. You're doing it for fun. Well, in shooting, I think, um, it's not always clear when you're making that choice, like where you are on that spectrum. You know, if you're a guy that, really just wants a robust practical solution, but you see the performance of these solids and somebody's trying to sell them to you. Um, you may not realize that that's on the other end of the spectrum that you're really comfortable with. Um, and so I think it, again, as many things like this, the essence of this podcast, it comes down to education and knowledge as to what choices are going to put you on the, you know, experimental expensive risky side of that, uh, spectrum and what choices are going to put you on, you know, the, the robust practical side of it. And I think if that were made more clear, you'd have a lot less disappointment. Cause I don't think guys mind failure if they know that they're experimenting, yeah. you know, but just don't sell a guy a solution and tell them that, Oh, this will work every time. It's just reliable and it's so easy. And, and then he's going to have all kinds of problems <laughs> and then he'll find out that you got to be a mad scientist to get it to work. Now that's a great way of framing it, and 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 I think everybody can relate to that that kind of you know analogy of putting things together and saying yeah let, you know we can be experimental, and I like that word experimental. Um, there's you know that's what wildcatters are doing. That's what a lot of guys out there are doing with stuff that creates maybe the next best thing. But there's there's like you were saying earlier, there's a process. There's there's usually a team behind it. It usually goes through a lot of different hands to um to, uh, you know, to verify how does it work with across a variety of uh, currently available, uh, you know, platforms. And, and so that's that's an important distinction, uh, which kind of brings us into we were going to talk. One of the questions that was out there was some of Berger's manufacturing side of things. And, and I think you wanted to get in a little bit on, um, you know, what you guys were doing as far as you want to get into it. Uh, that that was in in the new lines, the hybrids, and the things that you're doing now. So uh, maybe that's a good launch point. Sure. Yeah, I think um, this would be a good point to bring Emil in. I mean, he and I are both familiar with Burgers Manufacturing. We toured the plant together several times um, uh, together not that long ago. So, um, what do you have to say about that, Emil? Well. Um well, I first, I wanted to, uh, and this actually kind of, it dovetails into this, but I, I also wanted um, to ask Brian if you could address, because um, this, you know, 
I, when I first started messing with this stuff, you know, I was a shooter for decades, but I didn't really have a lot of uh, practical appreciation for how this stuff was made, you know? And, um, and so some of the things that I thought mattered didn't really matter, uh, which you can really only learn uh, if you understand the sort of the technical underpinnings of some of this science and uh, you know, and that the formula for BC being, you know, the relationship between sectional density and the form factor, um, you know, Brian was one, was the guy that told me that, you know, you have these people when they, they buy a box of bullets, one of the first things they do is they start weighing these things. And, uh, and you have a lot of people that, you know, they're, they post on, on Facebook, man, I got this new batch of bullets from manufacturer X and man, these things stink. Uh, they're supposed to be 175 grains and they're varying from 174.6 to 175.3. I mean, they're terrible. Uh, I can't possibly, I wouldn't shoot these things at a cat. (laughs) And, um, and so, uh, Brian, could you kind of, uh, talk, I mean, because it's a linear relationship is what I kind of sort of came to understand since you have, you know, sexual density as one part of the, and you have ballistic and the form factors, the other part of the, of the fraction that because they're set up like that, it's really a linear relationship between weight, which affects sexual density in a linear fashion. And since that's part of that equation, that it affects BC in a linear fashion. Um, and so even though we really strive to, 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 uh, you know, to, to control weight of our core, uh, extreme spread of the core weight, you know, lead core when we're making these bullets, the overall weight of the bullet, um, th- those weight differences are have a minimal effect on the BC and the performance. But Brian, could you actually maybe take five minutes? And because that was like a huge light bulb for ammo when you explained that to me, I was like, no, no kidding. No way. And it actually took a huge load off on my mind of, of things to actually check and measure and save myself some time. Yeah. Sure. So weighing like that's, you know, hand loaders like to, you know, we're tinkers, right? We're, we're trying to improve something, make it better. And um, it's our labor that does that, right? Our attention to detail. And so we end up measuring a lot of things that we can. We have calipers, we have scales. And so we sort things by size and weight because that's, those are the things we can measure. Well, the bullets, the thing that goes downrange, that's what we all care the most about. So they get weighed and uh, you know, measured in every way that we can. And so, you know, weight sorting bullets is a pretty common thing with hand loaders. And like Amo was saying, you can weigh a batch of bullets and find that, you know, they may vary plus or minus two tenths of a grain around the target weight or, you know, something like that. So if you consider, say, take a 200 grain, 30 caliber bullet. Okay. Uh, because of how the weight contributes to the ballistic coefficients it's a one-to-one ratio so a one percent change in bullet weight would be exactly a one percent change in the bc um and so one percent on a 200 grain bullet is two grains all right so if you had 200 grain bullets and they varied from 198 grains to 202 that's plus or minus two grains now no bullets are that terrible i've never seen bullets vary you know, four grains extreme spread. But if they did, that would only represent a plus or minus 1% on the BC for that bullet in flight. 
And that's not as bad as I think a lot of guys think they are, you know, plus or minus four grains, just because that's much higher than you see in any other bullet. We think it's terrible. We think the bullets are going to fly like shit. We think it's those, we want our money back for those bullets. But when you, you know, actually calculate how that matters, it's really plus or minus 1%. Now, we, we obviously do better. You know, what's way more likely is to have, you know, 200 grain class bullets with an extreme weight variation of plus or minus two tenths of a grain. You know, even that might be a little sloppy, but let's say they have two tenths of a grain. Well, that's one tenth of 1%. So, you know, if you have a batch of bullets that vary plus or minus two tenths, you're talking about plus or minus 0.1% on the BC of that bullet in flight. The weight, it just doesn't matter that much. Now, another effect that doesn't matter that much either is the effect it has on muzzle velocity. So heavier bullets tend to get pushed slower with the same powder charge. Now, if you're talking about plus or minus two tenths of a grain, you're probably not going to see that. But if you did, it would actually offset the effect of the bullet, you know, the BC being a little different. Let's say you get a bullet that's a little bit heavier. Okay. It may come out of the barrel a little bit slower, probably not just because of the nature of extreme spread and standard deviation that we see naturally. But if that heavier bullet did come out a little bit slower due to it being heavier, well, it's got a slightly higher BC. So those two things kind of offset. So the, the time that shooters spend weight sorting bullets into a bell curve by, you know, 0.05 grains, I, I won't say that it's a total waste of time, but not for the reason that most guys do it. I think the reason that's not a total waste of time is in the event that you catch the one 168-grain bullet in the box of 155s, right, or a mixed part, in other words. You, get, you find a bullet in there that looks like the others, but is actually a different bullet, and it's like 15 grains different, you know. In that case... It, may, it's, it was worth it that you caught that bullet and didn't load it with the other ones. But there's, there's absolutely no merit in weight sorting bullets and then like shooting them in batches of tenth of a grain increments. Yeah. I think you're just going to blow a whole bunch of people's mind with that. Um, in the, to be the realist side of, of it, I think a lot of people like to crunch the numbers and like read the books because it's easier than going out and actually shooting. So, oh yeah, give the sense of control. Yeah, and so they're they're looking for that one thing to say I didn't do as well yesterday because I I found in a book or in a in a web page or something an a built an excuse, you know, I found a reason and it's not me. You know, and mm -hmm. and, and I was reading this morning about this whole cancel crap, but that that we define ourselves by our suffering. You know, and, and like we basically, you know, there's always a, 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 a feel good story, but starts off with a problem. And so if you have like, hey, I wasn't shooting as good as I think I should be shooting. And so there's a problem. And now I realized, well, it's not me anymore. It's it's this one little thing. And, 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 and right. I think that's where you're getting into that weight sorting where they're, they're trying to eliminate all those variables to say it's not me. And if something goes wrong, well, then it could be within the batch. But I think it's a great, uh, like you said, to find that one bullet that might be in there that's a 155 versus a 168. That is, is super practical. That I mean, go through and, and 
in, I guess it would be sort of flash batch or flash sort, you know, just drop them through. Is it in the zone? Yes. In the zone? Yes. In the zone? Yes. Oh, wait a minute. This one's way off. Let's get rid of it. And, and in that case, I can almost see that being versus saying, you know, this one's point two different than that one. So it needs to be in a new pile now. Yeah, it, it happens so rarely. I mean, over over all the years that I've been hand loading, all the boxes of bullets that I've opened, I think I only got one mixed part and it wasn't even a fully formed bullet. It was a cup with a core in it that wasn't even pointed. So it was like obvious as a sore thumb, like there's no way you would load that on accident. Um, other than that, to my knowledge, I've never had it. Now I know that it's possible. Um, and I guess at that point, it really depends on the, uh, the seriousness level, seriousness level of what you're shooting to where if you're practicing or you, if you're not in a world championship, or if you're not shooting for a new Chevy truck, you probably, you know, I wouldn't spend all that time looking for that bullet that you might find one in 10 years. But if you are shooting for you know, pink slips or something. Well, hell yeah. You want to do everything you can to make sure that you don't have a mixed part in there, you know, for that batch of a hundred rounds or whatever it is so important. Um, but I mean, even, even by my standards, I wouldn't do that for most competition because 99.9% of the time you're wasting your time. Yeah. I mean, one of the, it's crazy. You mentioned that, but one of the longest conversations I ever had on internal ballistics came last year and was a Palma shooter. And, you know, he had all kinds, and he's, he's one of the top five Palma guys. I think he did really well at uh, the Burger Southwest and all that. And, um, you know, the, he was he was trying to look at every internal ballistic variable he can come up with. He didn't want to chase his load. He didn't want, he, you know, there was justification for all of it. But in my mind, it was like such a level of detail with a three hundred eight rifle that I would have never considered. But when a guy's going to something that prestigious, that big, and, you know, he, he's going to get one of the these, uh, you know, mass trophies that are out there, uh, I, I, I get it, you know? And, and so it's, it's interesting where the different disciplines often will put a bit of their focus, you know? And then that trickles into another discipline because, you know, I have a conversation with a Palma shooter, and then, you know, he's explaining something internal to me and maybe I relate that to somebody else who starts going, hey, that's a great idea. Maybe I'll do it for what I'm doing, even though I've never done it in the past. I, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to say what someone will key in on. Yeah. 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 So the, um, you know, that, and that's, uh, you know, you know, now if we jump into, you know, how we make these bullets, how you make the burger bullets. Um, a lot of, you know, quality and, uh, and precision is, is an aggregate of, you know, all these sort of small factors that do matter. Um, and, you know, there's other things, you know, with, we control, we control our, for example, our core weight. So the, you know, we have a, we have a process where we, we cut and form lead cores that go into the bullets and that core weight the extreme spread of core weight is 0.25 grains, which is pretty good. Um, uh, but I, you know, for us having that core weight control is more about maintaining the proper lead line in the bullets so that, um, they're formed in a, in a way that every bullet is the same. So, you know, we're controlling weight of the core weight, um, not necessarily, uh, because it has a BC effect or, but, 
uh, for our production uh, processes, the core weight is integral into making sure that our bullets are all the same, you know, within a lot of bullets. Uh, the, but like, you know, it starts with like premium material. So uh, I've been down there, you know, so again, this is me, Emil Prize, like failed English major, you know, retired uh, infantryman, right? So I walk in there and it looks like I'm going to the Willy Wonka factory and they've got these big rolls of copper uh, that are on sheets and uh, that's what that's what starts with the jacket. That's where the bullets start. So the, they don't use a preformed jacket. They make their own jackets in-house uh, out of one sheet of copper. And then that copper is tested. Um, they test it in a couple different ways. They they see how pliable it is. They have a machine which kind of stretches it, taking all kinds of measurements and data. Um, so there's like there's two departments inside the on the burger floor there's a jacket department and there's a bullet department and they each have their own sort of uh process controls and sort of chain of command and managers so the jacket guys work on jackets and the bullet guys work on the bullets and so that jacket uh after the materials are checked um and the processes are done they're holding the concentricity of total indicated runout uh to three ten thousandths of an inch and that's measured at three different points on the jacket. So, uh, and there's a couple of videos out there. Uh, I think we had um, we had Garrett Stoddard, who's our production engineer. He did like an Instagram takeover. I, I think long range, rent long range only. Uh, dot com. But there's other videos out there of the uh, of him of them testing these jackets and basically they put the jacket over a mandrel and there's a dial indicator that measures the ten thousands and they're usually running between one and two ten thousands they get an idea what that is you know i did a little googling and like a human hair is about three thousandths of an inch depending you know on the hair you know so if you say a, a human hair is, is three thousandths of an inch, that's divide that by ten. Divide that that hair, slice it in ten sections, and then that width of that one that tenth section is the indicated runout that we're allowing. And so that's controlling tooling. So when you're when they're making the jackets, if the tooling starts to wear and they get that jacket concentricity number, if it gets over three ten thousandths, we change out tooling. And that really is the bedrock of making those bullets the way they the way they are. You know, there's a reason why, you know, in the F class world and then the long range target world where you're scoring on a decimal system where you're just not hitting a chunk of steel, the closer you are to the center, the more points you get. And when you get into those disciplines, that's where people are almost universally are using burger bullets. because um, that affects precision directly is that concentricity. So um, to sorry sorry to step yeah, on you, Emil, but yeah, to to jump in on that point, the mechanism through which that low indicated runout on the jackets translates into precision. The reason that that's so important is because that bullet is spun up in the barrel to you know a hundred to two hundred thousand RPMs. Okay, it's spinning like a bastard when it comes out, and because the core, so the core is lead, the jacket is copper. The core is heavier, and if there is, if one side of the jacket is thicker than the other, then that heavy lead core is not on center. 
right? Think about your washing machine. If the, if all your jeans are on one side and it's spinning the spin out cycle, the whole thing shakes. And if that's your bullet going down the barrel and then it comes out at the muzzle, it flies off on a tangent in the direction that that, that the heavy side is. And so that that's what makes dispersion. And so the more concentric that jacket is and the more that what that does is it keeps the heavy lead core balanced in the center of the bullet in the center of the barrel. So it launches clean and doesn't have any dispersion. And so that's what's so important about it. And that that was the very thing that Walt Berger, when he was shooting Benchrest back in the day, um, keyed in on as, you know, he was buying bullets and he was dissatisfied with their precision. He started making bullets on available jackets and still couldn't get the precision that he was satisfied with. He, he, he bought a jeweler's lathe, a tiny little jeweler's lathe, and started turning the jackets to a uniform concentricity. So they're the same thickness like we're talking about and seeding cores in those and making bullets out of those corrected jackets and started winning Benchress matches and got on the Hall of Fame that way. So that's that. I mean, it seems like such a benign technical detail. Oh, our jackets are really uniform. Well, that really does mean everything when you talk about the precision of a spin stabilized projectile. It's microns and milliseconds, right? That's our game um, when you think yep. about it. And so um, it, it makes perfect sense that the, the mass produced item that we're shooting, our ammunition, and it, it, you know, it, it's it required that you guys have that level of of precision to, to go with it because we're trying to do so much so far away and, and it's microns and milliseconds, you know, I mean, what's, what's, what's like a true barrel life, something like five minutes or some weird shit thing like that. Um, if you, if you metered it out, it, it comes to like, you know, five minutes or less or some weird shit. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, how you, uh, so for me, again, as a non-technical guy watching these guys work and do that, you know, um, you know, when, when the company moved from California to set up our location in Mesa, uh, the number one priority was getting as many of the guys in the jacket production line to move with the company and relocate from California to, to Arizona. And a lot of them did because it literally it takes years to train those guys. Those guys get good at doing that because it's everything from controlling the lube um, how they're lubing these jackets. So there's the exact amount in the, in the, of the, in the right kind of lube uh, applied in a certain way to go in the dye. So these things all come out the same way. You know, you could, you know, in a very gross example, you know, if you take, uh, you know, I was setting a reloading die up last night and I was trying two different techniques. I was taking like Hornady one shot and I was spraying my, uh, uh, spraying my cases with that, and then I took some imperial sizing wax, and I did that with the die set exact same way. I was getting different headspace measurements for my cases. Um, you know, because the lube is is changing how the case comes out of that die, and so you can imagine, you know, and that's like, oh man, I'm trying to keep it to within one and a half thousandths or two thousandths of an inch. Well, that's like you know, forty, fifty times worse. You know, then yeah. then the then the concentricity that we're trying to maintain with the jackets. I'm not a math guy. My no, math but that's probably wrong. That's a huge knowledge Ralph bomb. Like, yeah. So, it, it, so it's so how those guys do that stuff. It's really um, it's really fascinating. And if, and if anybody, uh, I don't want to throw it out there too casually, but 
you know, if if you want if somebody really have if they had an opportunity and uh, to go through that factory, take that factory tour, uh, it's really interesting to watch. Um, and so, you know, so the and then the, the guys making the cores, it's the same way. Uh, you know, the the machinery isn't that um, space age. It's you know, it's pretty standard machinery, but it's it's getting ringing out the quality of it, and knowing those processes. So um, and then in a new huge advantage of, of the company moving to Arizona was, you know, where we're at now, we've got a 300 meter indoor tunnel. That's all that's all instrumented uh, to capture velocity and and group size at the target, 300 meters. So wait, the lot assurance, the lot assurance testing that's done, you know, in process testing and final testing is all done live fire. So the guy literally just they take the bullets, they walk them, you know, 100 yards across the parking lot to the test center and they're fired out of that return to battery fixture. Um, to make sure that the bullets are all performing in spec. So you, they can pick up on problems uh, or identify things mid-production so that we don't do a whole lot of, you know, over 100,000 pieces that go out the door and they're not performing. And and that is a, that's a huge deal. And the same thing with the ammunition side, you know, when we're making the ammunition, we, we are testing our ammunition, like the group sizes, like I go on my, you know, through my VPN here to my share drive. And I could, I'm looking at test results of our 6.5 Creedmoor ammo and our 6 Creedmoor ammo and our 300 uh, Wind Mag ammo and all these, all this ammo that we make. And they're all 300 meter groups. So if, you know, the guys are always trying to, to make sure we're beating that, you know, sub MOA or sub 0.75 MOA, or whatever the standard is on that particular lot of ammo, and that's all measured at 300 meters in a tunnel. That's a huge force multiplier for us um, in order to in order to maintain that quality. Um, it's really impressive. It really is impressive. And and that's the best part is that you you know I I've been on the factory tour uh, through Hornaday and and saw everything that they've gone on there. But that you guys are jazzed about what you've seen and where it is and and what's going on because I mean with Amo you have a long history on the military side in the AMU and all that. And, and, you know, Brian kind of comes in at it from a different standpoint on that scientific side, but from, you know, you hear it in your voice that you're jazzed about what you guys are doing, what you're seeing and the results that you're getting, because it translates to success for people you may know or may not know, you know what I mean? It may be a guy who's up and coming. That's in the F class world. Maybe you don't know him today. But next year he does really, really well, and and he's he's now podium placements all the time, and he's shooting a burger bullet, you know. So there's that there's that pride in the product in the process, and and I think that translates even through the radio, through your voice, you can hear it. Yeah, yeah I think I, one of the, go ahead, Ryan. Sorry, one of the things that Frank talked about earlier was getting insight into um, you know those of us who work day-to-day in the firearms industry and and the different perspective um, as opposed to recreational or even professional shooters you know for the shooters the the whole projectile journey starts you know when they're selecting what bullet they're going to test or try and then they get them and so that's where it starts you know they it's the experience starts with a finished product from some manufacturer uh, but when you work in the industry especially with a particular 
manufacturer, you you're attenuated to different things. You know, it's not what you know. You're not looking at what bullet's got the highest BC, who's winning with what. Like you're not trying to make decisions that way. But like you know, Amos said, we the jacket people are very important because of the length of time it takes to get good at that. Well, like if he or I heard that so and so in the jacket department was was sick or was thinking about moving. That's the kind of stuff that for, you know, for us makes us nervous. Like, okay, now that's, that means something that maybe not tomorrow or the next day, but eventually someday, if we don't um, address this root issue properly, it may someday trickle up to somebody not getting to that podium, you know, who selected our bullets. So, you know, we, we really pay attention to those things that, that matter to, the fundamental success and precision of this product. Nice. And and I think I think it does. I think you can you can hear it, you can see it. The results are there. I mean, even if a guy doesn't know why he should, you know, maybe it's herd mentality or crowd think. It's like, you know, I should be shooting the burger for this. And they may not know why they but they but they do know because these guys are winning because this person who I respect is using it because this, you know, and so, like you're saying, we look sort of at, at a different side of the why. You know, how how consistent is it? Do they have a new person working there who doesn't know what they're doing? I mean, I've been to places where they brought in new barrel machines and saw like 10 broken buttons. And it's like, oh, man, you know, who breaks 10 buttons? Mm-hmm. And it's, that could be, that's a why. That's something where you, you may see that, that a, a finished barrel on the street that's doing really well. And the guy goes, yeah, man, these things are doing working really great for me. And then it's like, wow, but I, you know what? When I went behind the scenes, I saw a, a lot of, you know, a, 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 the 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 bad bin was big, and and yeah. you know, and that's kind of the 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 deal. Where I mean, heck, I remember going to Bartlin with George Gardner, and he was going into the the refuse bin and pulling barrels out, scoping them and doing stuff and then lapping them and going and saying, nah, I'll take this one. It's great. You know, or I'll take this one. It's no problem. And, and doing stuff like that out of Bartlin's kind of bad bin and, you know, the, reworking a barrel that way for himself or something. But yeah, it's just, it, it's a different mindset of where the priority goes, but the end results are usually pretty close to the same. When I, um, you know, when I first started uh, with the company, you know, I do a lot of shooting and I was like, Hey, you know, just, can you guys send me the seconds, send me the, the bullet seconds and I'll shoot those. And they were like, we don't have them. I'm like, what do you mean? We don't have them. Like there, you, there's no such thing. So any bullet or a lot of bullets or sub lot of bullets that tests, that is not the standard. They never leave the factory. They go to the great bullet hunting ground in the sky immediately um which is kind of like the you know one of the core kind of uh you know tenets of their sort of philosophy down there so you know if it's not the best they can make it they 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 just won't make it and you know we've got you know having brian it you know uh we've got i'm really happy with uh the sort of process for development that that we that we have right now just to kind of lift lift up the the apron just a little bit. Um, you know, we have regular meetings about, um, about R and D and projects and where we want to be, 
you know, the things that are working right now, the things that we want, you know, within the next next year, the things that are like far off kind of blue sky research things. And we talk about that stuff in a pretty frequent, pretty frequent way. And we've got uh, our engineer down uh, in Mesa that's like 100 percent focused on making the bullets and making the ammunition uh, and improving those processes and sort of implementing. And we've got Brian on the other side, which as as kind of an external uh, ballistic resource and also as a bullet design resource. So we can, you know, we can kind of look at results. Hey, Brian can shoot them over radar. Um, Brian can kind of look at it in a stability and, and do all that stuff and use the big, the Brian big brain on that. And we've got a, we've got engineers that are working on the actual physical part. So, you know, between those two kind of, between those two kind of testing and uh, evaluation things, that's, I think our quality has really picked up. And, you know, I talked to Walt, uh, you know, before last shot show briefly, and, you know, he's, he said, look, the bullets that you got that we're making now are the best bullets that we've ever made, you know, to include making them one at a time, you know, on a hand, on a hand die. So uh, I'm very happy with where we're at right now and the quality that we're doing. And, you know, if I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk like this about it, to be honest. You know, I'm, I'm too much of an open book. Yeah, no, so, you're, you're, you're yeah. on a practical sense. I, I, like I said, the passion's there. You can hear it. And, and I know, you know, where you come from and, and that, that, that is that, that's that kind of like, yes or no, there's very little gray, you, you know, you, you could, you could see that stuff. I do want to hit one quick little tangent with Brian there. Cause I saw it this morning and actually I was just window shopping like this week or over the weekend, maybe it was, um, with the Garmin, with the uh, Delta tactic. So I kind of want to throw that out there because I saw that AB just announced that there's actually AB for the uh, Garmin smartwatch. Yeah, so today is the day we're finally allowed to talk about it. Um, we've been prototyping and trialing these things. It's the follow-on to the 701. I'm, it, that's been out a while, apply ballistics on a Garmin wearable um, but the 701 was kind of, you know, kind of big and clunky. You'd really only put it on when you were using it. But the watch that it's on now, um, the Tactics Delta, is a normal size wristwatch. Um, it's really sharp. Like I was wearing a Garmin fitness tracker before this. And so switching to it was pretty easy as far as the buttonology and, you know, the app that connects to it, show you all your vitals and everything. Um, but yeah, we our ballistic solver is on it now. Applied Ballistics Elite, the same solver that's on the Kestrel and Bushnell, and you know many other places that our solver is. Uh, it runs really seamless, man. It's if you know the buttons, you get into the solver. Like you may push the wrong button a couple times the first time through, but by the time you've entered a gun profile, um, you got range card, you got target cards, you got all the functionality of an app or a Kestrel. It's just on the watch now and the glass it's a uh, like a solar charging glass so you know a lot of times these high powered wristwatches they you know the batteries run dead real quick you got to charge them like a cell phone but this is like you charge it all the way up it says 21 days but honestly if you spend any time out in the sun you you don't lose a day of charge every day it that solar charge will kind of maintain it so it's I mean, it is badass. It's I haven't taken mine off since I got the prototype, even though we were still working out some bugs at first. You know, I kind of was part of the feedback process and, you know, fed you know, gave feedback and all that. 
but I've got the latest firmware on it now, the stuff that it's shipping with. And it's, I mean, it's really cool. And the processor is super fast. I mean, you can scroll through a range card past 3000 yards and it hardly takes any time at all to update. So super cool. I have the Bravo and I was looking to upgrade cause I, I run the Bravo tactic um, that goes on my trips with me because like you said, the battery on the garments last so long. I charge it before I leave. I go up to Alaska. I don't even bring the charger with me, the cord. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's just, I, it's fine till I get home. And that doesn't have the solar glass, which I know. And I was actually this week just looking at the new Phoenix six plus. And I was sort of looking at the deltas and I'm like, eh, I got the Bravo. And I actually have a freeware app on there. That's not great. Um, but then this morning when I saw that you had the applied ballistics in it, I'm like, well, that just made my upgrade path that much easier to pick, you know, to go yeah. um, to go in that direction. But I was I, I run the instinct is sort of my everyday. That's the light, more rubbery plastic version. Um, yeah, the, that's the one I had before the instinct. And I run that almost every day. And then when I travel and I go do stuff more extended, I was running the Bravo and so now with that Delta and the AB version, I'll probably be upgrading to the um, to the Delta. Uh, it is a fantastic watch. The Garmin products, I think, are are, are I personally use them, including the 701. Um, I do like the the, the 701 and and have used it in in comps at Sniper's Hide. Uh, I think it works good. I think the military and LE guys benefit from the 701, and then the everyday guys were benefiting from the the Kestrels. But now with the watch, you can just throw that watch on and, and run your stuff. Like you said, scroll through range cards. If you just wanted some, some you know, some like a backup. I ended up having mm-hmm. to use, um, when I first got the Vectronics Terrapin X, the new one, there was a little wiggle in there where if you didn't hit the button right, it was throwing like this crazy uh, like 60 degree angle in my shots. So if I hit the button coming up on a target, it would, th- it would put this angle in on the first gen, um, the prototype. And I was shooting a match with it, and I had the Garmin on as a backup. And I come up with the Terrapin, I hit a target, and it gave me like, you know, like a 400-yard target. The solution was like .07. And it was like, .07? What the frig is that? And what happened is the Terrapin in a submenu put an incline angle in. And, oh. you know, and, it, and they fixed it that it was, like I said, it was a prototype. It was a first gen, but you didn't see it at first because that's the sub menu in the Kestrel. And so it was like, oh, damn, yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, forget it. Wow. So I took, I took <laughs> my Kestrel kind of threw it. It was on, over around my neck. I threw the Kestrel behind my back, but I had the Garmin on as a backup. So I was able to just kind of pull the Garmin up really quick and say, okay, for that 450-yard target, I need 2.6 or 2.4, whatever the answer was. And, and I used it sort of as a, as a watch and a backup. But now you can almost do the same thing with the, with the, 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 the Delta. And the Delta is a good-looking watch, and it's, it's really I – can, I can tell you I wear the snot out of the Bravo. And the Bravo's two gens back, and I love it. So I, I think that's a great job you guys did with that. Yeah, I was using the prototype in the Night Force ELR steel match a few weeks ago, and it's a two-day match, and I used the watch on the first day and the Kestrel on the second day. And like I said in that, when we were discussing that in a past episode, I'm not really familiar that much with that kind of shooting, so I learned a lot. And that's one of the things I couldn't go into detail then, but that's one of the things I was learning through is you know, learning to use these ballistic solvers on the fly in a field shooting environment where you're under time. 
it's really a novel experience for me. I'm on the development side. I test the crap out of things, but using it like that, you know, so I got a real, you know, user perspective on the two devices. And I would say that my takeaways on the pros and cons, the, the advantages of the watch is that, you know, you don't need an extra hand to hold it. It's right there. Um, it's, it's easy to see. You don't have to reach for it or anything. Um, the, I'd say the downside of it or the advantage of the Kestrel is that your atmospherics are automatic and built in. So the Garmin has a uh, uh, altimeter or barometer in it. So it's measuring pressure, but temperature and humidity are things you have to get externally. So you either have to get the Tempe sensor and link to that, or you got to read a Kestrel to put your atmospherics over into it. And then depending on how far you're shooting, you know, you may not have to update that, but once every few stages, but that was just kind of one awkward thing where you needed two devices to transcribe the atmospherics into it. Um, so that was the downside, but you know, there's like any device, whether it's rangefinder, watch, weather meter, you know, just a phone app, there's pros and cons to every one of those devices and you just have to practice with them, you know, pick which one's best for you and then just get really good at using it. No, I agree. And I'm, what, I bring it up. I didn't mean to kind of go into the AB centric thing over burger stuff, but it, it, I'm a super fan and, and I like what you guys did with that. And so I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. Thanks, man. It's an exciting day. Yeah. 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 Like I said, I saw it this morning coming on. I'm like, oh, great. I, I'm, I was so glad I didn't make an impulse buy like three days ago. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like I was rare. I, I think I even had something in the cart. And I was, I was, I was messing, what I was messing with was the features because they have like the 42 millimeter versus like the 45 or 47 size wise. Um, and so I was trying to kind of trend to a smaller watch. And so I was playing, like they don't do the solar on the little, on the short, on the, the small guy ones. And, and so I was like, well, do I want to do this? So I was kind of bouncing between the full size version of the Phoenix and then the smaller versions that limited some of the options. But I would, like I said, I use the Bravo, which only comes in one size anyway. So I would, you know, it's not like I haven't been wearing that for, you know, three, four years, however long that Bravo's been out. But no, I, yeah. I, I think that's a, 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 it's, it's a good looking watch. It's a great watch. It's durable as hell. Um, it answers your phone and not answers it, but it gives you your notifications for your phone. So even like I'm driving, I just throw my cell phone on the seat or something. I don't have... Um, you, you know, one of the, um, the holders up on the windshield or nothing. All you do is flip your arm up and look at your watch. Who's texting me? Oh, okay. So-and-so who's calling me if it doesn't come up on the car. Okay, whatever. And so I, I really like the, the, the way the Garmin connects and I, I think they're, um, uh, they're stable. You know, you never have these weird electronic hiccups with the Garmin products. So, uh, yep. I, I, I do, uh, appreciate and enjoy that. So that's an odd tangent there, but I, I, like I said, as a fan, I kind of wanted to bring it up. Cool. Um, yeah, Hey, thanks, we're, we're on the hour, man. Um, I don't know if, uh, you guys had a couple other things you wanted to finish off with, but if not, we, we, we we're right in on the hour. Now that worked out really well for everybody. It was a great, nice flow conversation. I think we hit on some of the high points of the final questions people were asking, or at least the ones I've saw recently. I think you guys might still have some questions, but we're going to be doing other episodes for people. Um, initially I thought it was five, but it's 10, but we were going to spread them out the last four. Um, just cause we are getting back into working a little bit. And some of us are traveling and training and doing stuff. Um, so coordinating everybody in the same place 
so we will be doing the last block of uh, episodes. We're just going to stay uh, stagger them a little farther. And then that'll let you guys get questions into us. If you want to expand on something, look at another question. Uh, so the listeners out there, go to the Podbean app, go to uh, the website. You can go on Facebook, the Burgers page, and you can put a question there and say, hey, listening on the Everyday Sniper, I have a question for Brian or Emil, and and we can address that. So, uh, And then article-wise, you guys have the uh, burgernobsbc.com which is what does the articles and the information. So if you guys want to get digger or dig deeper with white paper stuff and things like that, go to Burger's website. They have the No BSBC section, which is tons of informational. Um, there, there's a lot of really good uh, data being put out there. Almost. Yeah, yeah, Frank. Uh, the uh, obviously the 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 No BSBC dot com uh, really invite people to kind of utilize all the resources on our website, uh, burgerbullets.com, uh, the, the ballistic, the ballistic calculator that we have there, the, um, the twist rate, uh, solver calculator that we have there, all the articles that, uh, you know, go on all the way back years that are all archived there. There's just a ton of great information, uh, that can help people just understand all the things in this process. And, uh, and again, thank you for the venue uh, for to let us get this message out. And uh, obviously, you know, we're we're very proud to have a resource like Brian as part of our organization because he just he makes everybody better. Um, you know, you just have to. There's a lot of people competing for Brian's time, so we all have to be. You know, we're all pretty. And and, and I appreciate that too, because like I said, there's always been a little bit of back and forth, but I appreciate that you guys are using this, uh, using the everyday sniper for that. Um, it, it does not go unnoticed on my side as well. But uh, so, yeah, thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to comment. Don't forget to share the podcast. Um, I don't know if you have a wrap up, Brian. Um, if not, but uh, if not, we're good, man. I can hit the outro music if you guys are done. Uh, quick, uh, quick closing comment. The you know, we're doing our best to put the best stuff out there, and that includes this information. So, uh, again, thanks for the venue and. You know, a lot of guys look at ballistics as just a matter of selecting the best equipment, and that's certainly important. But, you know, don't forget the equipment that's between your ears. You know, that's what we're talking about on this podcast is to fill fill that piece of equipment up and so you can make the best use of the tools that are out there. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I'm going to close it out. Just stay on the line a second, and, and we'll uh, real quick to say something. But uh, other than that, we're out of here, man. Appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank.